0: If you have your Bibles, please turn to James chapter 2. Uh, James chapter 2, scroll there if you're using your phone this morning from your, uh, from your home. James chapter 2, we're gonna look this morning um, beginning at verse 1, and we're gonna walk, walk through verse 13. You know, chapter 2, verse 1 in the book of James is actually a continuation of James's words to us in chapter 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. If you recall last week, We talk about the discipline or we talked about the discipline of listening and and the height of that discipline is found in actually listening to God when he speaks in his word. So what does it mean to truly listen to God's words? Well, it means that we are not just hearers. But we are doers, according to James chapter 1. We hear God and then we obey God and do what God says. But what does it mean to obey and to do? Well, it means to not just obey in regards to our personal and our internal obedience. In other words, keeping oneself unstained from the world, as chapter 1 puts it. But it also refers to our external And our social obedience, that being caring for the widow and the orphan. James in chapter 1 calls this pure religion. Being doers of the word is pure religion. Keeping oneself unstained from the world and caring for the least of these. Caring for those who do not have a voice. Caring for those who are in need of care and in need of help. And so chapter 2 is a launch point right out of that 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 call to pure religion. And this launch point is partiality or avoiding partiality. This morning we want to deal with avoiding partiality or being impartial, by looking at James's commandment in chapter 2, his exhortation concerning partiality, by looking at James's example in chapter 2, the example regarding partiality, and lastly, by looking at the three encouragements that James gives us to help us avoid partiality. Exhortation, example, and encouragement. Let's start with exhortation. In verse 1, he begins by saying, my brothers... He begins his appeal with a gentle greeting, My brothers. Some hard truths are best served with soft reminders that we are, in fact, family. And since we are family, we can have hard conversations without rejecting each other at the end of them. This is a hard conversation. Thus, James prepares them with the transition and the greeting, My brothers. Verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Show no partiality. To say it another way, show no favoritism. Partiality and favoritism is to make a judgment regarding the inherent worth and value of a person based on the external factors surrounding that person. That being their appearance, their finances, their race or ethnicity or etc., to determine whether someone is deserving of of more based on how much they appear to be worth or how much they appear to be able to enhance our worth. That's what it means to show favoritism and partiality. James appears to see a problem in the early church. And so he is giving this entire section in chapter 2 to addressing this particular problem that he sees. In fact, the very next thing that we should notice about verse 1 is where James roots his commandment, his exhortation to reject partiality and favoritism. Again, verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. James is grounding our commitment to viewing And treating everyone as equals in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, one reflection of the faith that we hold dear should be a full-fledged rejection of treating people with more or less dignity, worth, and respect. Based on the level of outer beauty, outer riches, outer influence, outer knowledge, or outer prominence that they carry. People who have given themselves over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ should also be people who are daily laboring to treat every man and every woman with equal dignity, worth, and regard. You know, there is a natural and a human tendency in all of us to find some external quality that a person carries and to elevate them above everyone else based on that particular quality. You know, it could be money, it could be race or ethnicity, it could be intellect, it could be a level of achievement, it could be their talent, it could be their gifting. We often do this in an attempt to gain something from that particular person. We elevate them in order to be connected with them in some way. I mean, why do we celebrate or why do we bring celebrities into our restaurant and allow them to eat for free? It's not because they need free food. They have the money. Sometimes it's because the people giving the food away feel like they are actually getting something in return from the celebrity. Sometimes it's publicity. Sometimes it's notoriety. Sometimes it's clout. Sometimes it's friendship. Sometimes it's a chance for more partnerships in the future. This is the nature of partiality. We're partial to the people that we value. But James is saying one of the qualities of the Christian life is a flattening out of how we value people. We begin to value all people regardless of their wealth, regardless of their race, ethnicity, class, status, academics, or intellect. One more thing about this exhortation. Not only do we begin to show less partiality when the way we value people is flattened out and we see them as equals, but we also begin to show less partiality when the way we see God is elevated. Look again at verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, calling him the Lord of glory, is a way of ascribing ultimate significance to God. It's a way of ascribing ascribing ultimate importance to Christ. One reason we sometimes struggle to treat some people with favoritism is because we tend to give people a higher place of importance in our lives than they deserve. Now, hear me on this. I'm not saying that people aren't important. As image bearers, people, of course, are important. They bear the image of God, but people are not ultimate. When we don't treat people as ultimate and we treat rather God as ultimate, we are less prone to treat people with favoritism. So we have the command. What does the example teach us about the command? In order to drive home this exhortation to be impartial, James gives us a very common example, an example that almost if you go to any culture in any day, they could identify with this example. Rich man, poor man. Verse 2, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say... You sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The setting that James uses as his example is not 100% clear. Some say it could possibly be a synagogue with both Christian and non-Christian uh, people in, 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 in their presence, some say it could even be um, a, a gathering where Christians are handling civil matters almost in, in a court-like manner. But then there are other people that say, and most people believe that this is a traditional Christian worship gathering that's appropriate for the day and time in which James is writing. I love the way that theologian Douglas Moo paints the picture of these two men who are coming into this gathering, you know. Sometimes when I read this text, and sometimes I'm sure when many, when, when many of you read this text, we hear these two men being welcomed into this gathering, and we think about them almost as visitors coming into a worship space. But Douglas Moo changes this, this, this this ideal, and he says, think more of these two men not as just simply visitors, but as new converts because they are being welcomed into a very intimate space. And so the possibility of them being new converts in James's example is very reasonable. And when you think about them as being new converts, then all of a sudden the, the ideal uh, or the, 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 the imagination begins to expand in terms of what could be happening in this moment. Let's say these two men, they walk through our worship doors as new converts. They welcome, they are being welcomed into the faith family. And one has on a Brooks Brothers shirt and slacks, and, and maybe this, this, maybe he has on the latest pair of retro Jordans that you know that, that you know as soon as you see them that they cost several hundred dollars. His speech is clean, he's well-kept, he is good-looking, and immediately everybody begins to gravitate towards him. They invite him to all the social gatherings. They want him in their missional community or their small groups. They invite him over to the house for dinner. They encourage him to join their morning prayer groups that maybe they're hosting. They send him friends requests on Facebook, and they follow him on Twitter and on Instagram. This guy is the bow of the ball. And he leaves that night thinking, man, this church is so welcoming and so loving. But on the other hand, there was another guy that came into this gathering that same day. His clothes weren't Brooks Brothers. In fact, they were without question a third or fourth generation hand me down They were unwashed. In fact, they were even smelly. You could smell not only his clothes, but you could smell him and see the dinginess and dirtiness on him. His Nikes that he was wearing, they were really hot 10 years ago. But somebody apparently after wearing them for so long and wearing out the soles decided that it was time to get rid of them. And so they gave them to him, the worn out, smelly soles and all. His speech is broken. He's not that sharp intellectually. Nevertheless, he's allowed in just like Mr. Brooks' brothers. But unlike Mr. Brooks' brothers, nobody pays attention to him. Nobody invites him to their small group. Nobody takes him out for lunch. No one sends him an invite to their morning prayer group. James says these two men should come into your fold as new converts and should be valued the exact same. Same way. And when I say value, what am I saying? Verse 3, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down in my feet. Pay attention. That's what I mean by value. You see, you devote attention to what you value. So when we devote attention to the wealthy and we ignore or dismiss the poor, then we can shout until we're blue or purple in the face that we have a heart for the poor, but our posture will uncover the truth that resides in our hearts. The same can be said for the one who, who says, I consider uh, the one who says that, yeah, though you may be intellectually unequal with me, I still consider you my, my equal. The same can be said about the one who says, though you're not my same ethnicity, I still consider you my equal. The same can be said for the one who says that though you might not be in the same social circles as me outside of this gathering or outside of these people, I still consider you my equal. Whether or not we consider one another equal all depends on the amount of energy and attention we devote to one another. Who do you devote energy and resources to? Who do you devote time and effort to? Who do you offer prayers on behalf of? Who is worthy of your attention? Is it, that, is it those that look like you or, are it, or, or could it be those that look like you? Could it be those who have something external to offer you? Could it be those who enhance your external value perhaps by just being around them? You see, the answers to those questions are oftentimes the answers to the question, who do you value? Who do you favor? James says, when I allow these external factors to govern how much much attention I give a person, then it means that I'm operating in partiality. Verse 4 says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You become judges with evil thoughts when you are partial, when you are showing attention to one and not the other based solely on externals. You become partial judges. You know, there was a judge in Pennsylvania years ago who was known for his harsh sentences that he delved out to kids. He was called Mr. Low Tolerance. Beginning in 2004, this judge um, from from 2004 and throughout maybe five, six, seven years, perhaps, I can't remember how long, but he put thousands of kids in jail for all sorts of minor infractions. He had an 11-year-old, for example, in prison for almost two years after this 11-year-old took his uh, mom's car around the block for a joyride. He had a 15-year-old sent to juvenile detention for teasing their assistant principal on MySpace. He had a 17-year-old arrested for helping steal DVDs. But after years of investigation, his motivations for being Mr. Low Tolerance, were uncovered. He was getting kickbacks from the juvenile detention center that he was sending all these kids to. In fact, he was getting so many kickbacks, it's been estimated that he made $1 million sending thousands of kids to jail for little more than reasons that would have gotten those kids grounded under different circumstances. Now, does that not upset you? Does that not disgust you? It should. But James flips the tables on us, and says we take on the nature of judges like this when we when we take. Those that are born in the image and likeness of God and we determine that they are not worthy of our attention because they don't dress nice or they don't look nice or they don't smell nice or they aren't the right color or ethnicity or they aren't from the right school or from the right Country, when we turn our attention away from the image bearers of God based on these external factors, we become like judges with evil thoughts. We become partial judges. So, first, James gives us the exhortation, the command to not be partial. Then he gives us the example of what that partiality looks like. Now, James is going to give us three ways to help us avoid it. Three encouragements, if you will. The first encouragement from partiality, the first encouragement to avoid partiality, knowing people. James's first way to help us avoid partiality is to understand that those who we often give partiality to use it to further oppress versus those who we normally or often withhold partiality or withhold favor from are often most in need of our attention and we'll use that attention to give glory and honor to God. Verse five, he says, "'Listen, my beloved brothers. "'Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world "'to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, "'which he has promised to those who love him? "'But you have dishonored the poor.'" Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? You know, one pastor, before I even jump into this, I want to just highlight this, 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 this really important point that one pastor gives us, this really important caveat, and it's this. That this passage does not mean all poor people are saved and all rich people are condemned. He continues, rather, it's a simple acknowledgment that those who are destitute often recognize their need for a Savior. Likewise, those living proudly in wealth and comfort frequently miss their need for a Savior. In fact, James more than likely has not, um, has not just a material sense of the word poor in mind here. He doesn't have just a material sense of the word rich in mind here, but he has a spiritual sense of these words in mind. Many who are poor are also poor in spirit, for it is often not quite as hard to be humble when you have no possessions to brag about. Those are the men and the women primed to be rich in faith and and heirs of the kingdom of God as they recognize their humble state and acknowledge their need for a savior. You know, we see God defer often to the poor in Scripture. Jesus himself says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. God himself calls himself a defender of the orphan and widow and the immigrant in need. Even Jesus himself enters humanity through poverty, born into a manger with meager occupation and meager accommodations. For those reasons alone, instead of dishonor, those are the ones often in need of more honor, in need of more attention. We should be asking ourselves, what can I learn from these men and these women about godliness? Because it is often in them where godliness is most on display. On the other hand, those who have means can at times struggle with the notion that it was not simply their own greatness that got them those means. Their lives can cast an illusion of completeness, leaving them saying, I don't need anything else. I got everything I need. I have in me all that I need. Others can also fall into the temptation of stepping on others in order to gain more. Once they get, then their ambition leads them to stepping on whomever they have to step on, oppressing whoever they have to oppress in order to get more. In fact, there is more than likely, this is rather more than likely who James is speaking to and has in mind in this text when he speaks to the church here and he says that the rich ones are the ones most likely to oppress you. He's speaking about the rich who just can't seem to ever get enough. He, this rich man keeps seizing more land. He keeps seizing more property, more ownership of products and inventions. He keeps swallowing up all the margin and leaving less and less and less for others. These folks tend to be less humble, operate with less integrity, and see less of their need of a savior. Except for the savior inside of them, the the savior of me. Jesus speaks to these men and these women, and he warns them in this text, saying, Truly I say to you in Matthew 19, verse 23, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. See, James's encouragement here is more than likely to the believers who probably say to themselves, If I show this rich person favor, then that may lead to a better situation. Or a better spot for me. And on the contrary, James is saying, nah. You may just end up selling out your integrity. Selling out your morals in hopes of getting ahead. And oftentimes you end up not only getting ahead or, or, or not getting ahead or getting where you hope you be. But you end up worse off than when you started. So before you show partiality, know how people operate. It doesn't always end up like we suspect it will. James, the second way to steer us away from uh, partiality is a very, very, very important encouragement as well. Know God's royal law. Look at verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. James ties impartiality to loving neighbor when we don't show favoritism and partiality we are loving neighbor and when we love our neighbor we are doing well james's words here in verse 8 are tied all the way back to verses 18 through 27 in chapter 1 it is tied all the way back to being a doer of the word tied all the way back to walking in pure religion. This is what it means to love neighbor, and to love neighbor means to not show partiality towards neighbor. According to James, if we fulfill this commandment, you are most likely living in true faithfulness to the God that you proclaim and profess. James calls this commandment the royal law, the law that governs kingdom ethics. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, Jesus has a Similar take on this royal law. Remember when he was asked, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? How did he respond? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says on these two commandments hang all the law or depend all the law and the prophets. If you love your neighbor, you do well. But this connection of love of neighbor to the fulfillment of all of God's law doesn't even start with the Gospels. We first hear this commandment all the way back in the Old Testament. And we find something very interesting when we go to the Old Testament and look at this commandment, which is found in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Leviticus 19, verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In verse 18, we hear the words love your neighbor as yourself again. But notice if you're in chapter 19, notice the context in which these words are spoken. If you look at 19, chapter 19, verse 15 in Leviticus, you hear this. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or deferred to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice this theme of justice bubbling to the surface again. This theme of justice, this, we, we, we talk about, when, we, when, you, when you're talking about partiality and impartiality, you're talking about matters of justice. Now you are talking about matters of justice again in this text when we talk about love of neighbor. In verse 18 of chapter 19 Leviticus, we hear love your neighbor. But did you hear all the civil matters that I just read about that were tied up into this love of neighbor? Don't take vengeance in your own hands. Don't defame or slander others. But verse 15, we see it clear as day. You shall not do injustice in the court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. To love your neighbor in Old Testament, in Old Testament terms, includes acting justly towards your neighbor. And that's why James can connect love of neighbor with an appeal to not show partiality. Because love of neighbor is more than just an act of being kind and being nice. It is a call to dealing equally with your neighbors, endowing them with rights or or acknowledging the rights that have been endowed upon them as image bearers. Sharing the rights with them that have nothing to do with their external appearance and everything to do with their internal nature as image bearers of God. Last reason, last or rather last encouragement to avoid partiality, knowing Jesus. James brings us home with a final encouragement to steer us away from partiality found in verses 12 through 13. But before James gives us these words, he gives us some sobering words in verses 9 through 11. He says this, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. James says the one who is partial is not just rude, not just unpleasant to be around. That person is practicing sin. One theologian puts it this way. Listen, he says, imagine walking into a lunchroom by yourself and you see two tables. One table has a group of people ethnically like you and the other table has a group of people ethnically not like you. What do you instinctively do? You gravitate toward the people who are like you. But why? What is the mental impulse that leads us to make that decision? I don't want to oversimplify this, but it goes something like this, and he continues at the speed of thought, one group is not like me, one group is like me. One group like me, the group like me is safer, and therefore more comfortable, and more comfortable means there is more to gain. At the speed of thought, you are drawn instinctively toward those who are like you. The opposite thought process goes on when we think of the other table that is not like us. They are not like me, and therefore they are not safe, which means they are not comfortable, and thus I have nothing to gain. James says not to think like this. Don't respond to one another according to the face or according to the outer Appearance, end quote. James says not only to not think like this, but James is calling this pattern of behavior, this, this partiality, this assuming that one group is safer and, a, and another is not based on nothing but appearance alone. To assume that you have more to gain from one group than another based on nothing but appearance alone. James is calling that sinful. And then he hits us with this reality about that sin, saying it doesn't matter how much law-keeping we do. If we break one part of the law, we are accountable for all of the law. What do we do with that? What do you do with that? What do I do with that? Because we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are guilty of that sort of partiality. And we are probably guilty of many more examples of partiality. So what do we do with that? We take heed to verse 12 and verse 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James is really striking at the heart of a very important matter here. Oftentimes, the most likely of people to operate with partiality are people who operate without mercy. The people who try to set up all of the fences and gates around and and determine who is in and who is out and who's good enough and who's not good enough to have a seat are also the same people who lack mercy. The people who want to give a stiff arm to the poor man at the door are the same ones who only can see what the poor man has done that has earned him, quote-unquote, that position. Those are the people that say, no, he doesn't deserve our attention because he earned the position in which he sits. But James says that is sinful, and your unrighteous judgment towards those who don't fit your external criteria leaves you judged as a sinner and as a lawbreaker. Remember the man in the Gospels that was at the altar that Jesus told us about, who thought so highly of himself and who thanked the Lord that he was nothing like the sinner who was also in the room praying. But that sinner was in the room praying, saying, have mercy on me, recognizing his sin. And Jesus told us that there was only one that went home justified that day, and it wasn't the one going on and on about how terrible the other guy was. So how do we receive the help that we need? We act like people who are to be judged under the law of liberty. We act like people who understand that mercy triumphs over judgment. In other words, we act like a gospel community. You see, as sinners, every single one of us deserve to be rejected by Jesus. We deserve to be... Cast aside by Jesus. We deserve to be treated partially by Jesus. We were the poor. We were the unclean. We were the one in the shabby clothes what does he do instead? What does Jesus do instead? He destroys all pre- preconceived notions and ideas for how you are supposed to treat the weak, how you're supposed to treat the wretched, how you're supposed to treat the dirty, and instead the richest person in the room takes off his garments and gives them to the dirtiest people in the room, that being us. He gives them to us by coming down from heaven and taking on the form of man. The richest person in the room takes on the poverty of the poorest people in the room by coming down from heaven, being born in a manger, taking on lowly occupation, receiving lowly accommodation. Instead of rebuke and scorn for our sinfulness, he gives us mercy He takes our place, what we deserved, what we earned on the cross. He takes our place there. And now we are no longer in danger of hellfire. We are no longer in danger of the wrath of God in which we deserve because he took our place. So that everyone who trusts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior now has eternal life waiting on them. You see, when we understand this, brothers and sisters, how on earth will we ever be able to withhold mercy from someone else? When we understand the treatment we actually deserve, how on earth will we be able to treat others with partiality? The biggest key to us becoming a community of mercy and justice is by truly embracing the gospel and understanding what Jesus has done for us. Mercy will triumph judgment in our dealings with others when we come to fully realize how mercy has triumphed judgment in Jesus' dealing with us. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you. We celebrate the, the truth and the reality that mercy has triumphed over judgment because, Lord God, you came down in the form of human humanity, Lord God, and you took upon, uh, upon your shoulders, Lord God, the payment for our sin, and you rose from the grave with all power in your hand so that whoever might trust you as Savior and Lord, turning from their lives of sin and embracing your life, would find eternal life. And so we thank you, Lord God, for mercy, And we pray, Lord God, that it be that mercy that shapes the way we treat one another and that destroys any semblance of favoritism or partiality that might seek to find its way into our communities, Lord God. Lord, we love you so much and we give you all the thanks and all the praise and all the glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.